0: So, as a kid, I was a terrible gift receiver. I've told this, these stories before, and um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember speaking and telling a similar story, and mom sitting there in the back just nodding her head because she agreed with every word I was saying. I, <laughs> you know, kids get excited on Christmas morning. They want to get up early. They want to see what's under the tree. They're excited. Not me. I I slept in. I didn't come down the stairs. (laughs) They're they're waiting for me. I'm not jumping in their bed waking them up. Crazy. And honestly, it's the reason why is horrible. It's because I already knew what I was getting. I was terrible. I would go to great lengths to find out what I was getting. Even in the store, mom had a gift in her hand inside of a bag. And I told her what it was because I knew what it was. You know, this week I have a friend that posts a lot of vintage and nostalgic things on Facebook. And he posted a picture of a toy that I had when I was a kid, an action figure kind of guy, and it, I remembered that Christmas when I got that toy. You see, I even looked up the packaging, the box, what it looked like in the box. The box, and I, I've, again, I've told this story before, but it, uh, it, he had a chest armor plate, and the box was formed to the armor, and I felt in the store what the box felt like So that when it was wrapped under the tree, I could say, oh, that's uh, Major Max or whatever toy it was. And so I I wasn't in any hurry to open that. I knew exactly what it was. So I was a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, gift receiver. Took all the fun out of it. Um, And it's no wonder that she, mom put uh, SpaghettiOs in my stocking because, but I was pretty excited about those. Let me tell you, still am crazy. Anyway, <laughs> I have to walk faster past that aisle in the dollar store where the SpaghettiOs are. Anyway, we're, we're talking about, we we do talk this time of year about the blessings, uh, gifts or, or, or blessings that we receive or give to other people. In the Bible, in this passage, in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, well, it's actually the bigger passage, it is uh, Jacob telling, uh, giving the blessing to his sons, which was a huge big deal that you would do in the day uh, before you were on your deathbed or, or ready to go. Is that your your children would know that blessing? They would they would each one be be touched and. And given a proclamation over their lives. And so that's what we find in this passage. When we come to Judah's uh, turn, when it's his turn, um, it's a little more extraordinary and relevant to us today. So Jacob is blessing his sons before his death, and he's foretelling the future of each tribe and the uh, connection to Jesus' birth comes through. Uh, the prophecy comes through within this blessing. So in verse 10, Jacob says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So, Oftentimes, this verse is interpreted as a messianic prophecy. And it refers to Jesus as the fulfillment. And let's talk a little bit how it connects to Jesus' birth and his life. First of all, let's look at uh, the lineage that's mentioned in here. Uh, Imagine with me a tapestry a huge uh, tapestry like you'd see in a castle. Again, it's made up of so many uh, threads and designs. And each thread could represent in the lineage of Jesus and tracing it back all the way to Judah in Genesis 49. So let's explore that lineage just a little bit. Um. The passage unveils a prophecy by Jacob about Judah's line. And it's a line that's destined for loyal royal legacy. The, the prophecy comes uh, as a golden thread within that tapestry, connecting the Old Testament's promises to the New Testament's fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 in particular, it speaks of a scepter, not departing from Judah until Shiloh comes and signaling a ruler and a gathering of people uh, to him. This promised ruler finds its fulfillment in Christ. Let's reveal that lineage. The lineage of Judah is traced through historical accounts. David, of the tribe of Judah himself, is promised an everlasting kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Um, when we get to the New Testament, that lineage is established, uh, particularly... Uh, In the book of Matthew, in the genealogies, they uh, meticulously trace Jesus' lineage back to Judah, um, affirming his rightful place as the promised descendant there. Matthew 1 begins in verse 2 with this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And it goes on for quite a bit until it ends in verse 16 with this. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now for Jesus here, it's more than just a list of names um, within that long list. There are in that list, when you look at the names and you realize there are biblical accounts associated with those names, it's a long list of stories of people, stories of their, their faith, Stories of uh, their failings, their struggle uh, to be faithful to God's promises. It's a testament also to God's faithfulness over the centuries, that he was able to preserve this line and so that Matthew could sit down with pen and paper and trace it from where it came. So the lineage of Jesus, again, more than names, but it represents people That played a part in establishing this kingdom. So very important. And we'll talk about its fulfillment here in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, Jesus represents God's change in the law, his plan for redemption, and from whom it would be administered. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author points to a new priest. Starting in verse 11, it says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and again, the priests in the Old Testament came through the tribe of Levi. So when we say Levitical priesthood, it means of the tribe of Levi. Um, For under this tribe, people received the law. What further need would there have been, if it were, again, back to perfection, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron, Aaron, a Levite? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change In the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. From which no one has ever served at the altar. Again, priests come from the tribe of Levi, not Judah. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So in Jesus' everything changes, right? The old covenant, the law handed down through the Levitical priests, has switched to this one from the tribe of Judah. He descended from Judah, and this solidifies his identity as the long-awaited Messiah, establishing a new priesthood. In other words, when Jesus came, everything changed. We're not bound to the laws of the Aaronic Levitical priests in this blessing that was pronounced over Judah in Genesis. We are given hope of a life eternal. And for those of us who put our faith and our trust in Jesus and only in Jesus, we can be assured of a place in his kingdom Yeah, I want to say this morning in the strongest terms available that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's not in doing good. It's not in sitting in a pew, not even faithfully. It's not in how good of a neighbor you are, how many presents you give away. It's not in man-made good of any kind. It is only found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who went from the manger in Bethlehem to the place of the skull on Mount Calvary, down to the depths of the grave itself, and victoriously up to the Father in heaven, to make intercession for those of us who love and serve him, having turned "...from the charms of this world and pointed our heads unflinchingly toward the only one who can save. The Lion of Judah, the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega, beginning and the end. Our Lord and God's gift to mankind, Jesus Christ. And I'll ask, do you know him today? Do you know him? Do you really know him?" Not just know about him or know of him, but are you following him today? Is it more than just an exercise? Do you have genuine love in your heart for this line of Judah? Revelation chapter 5 says this, and John is is, uh, giving the word as he's receiving it, the scene And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll at its seven seals. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Fulfilling the prophecy's imagery of power and his authority. Our king and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. Consider a lion as it's given here. It was the symbol of strength and kingship. In Jesus, this symbolism reaches its peak Just as the lion leads with authority and protects its own, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, leads with his divine authority and offers protection and salvation to all who would simply turn from their sins and follow him. The lineage of Jesus is traced back to Judah and it fulfills the prophecy spoken centuries, before his birth and it showcases God's unwavering commitment to his promises and his intricate plan to bring salvation to the world through his son. Now let's talk a little bit about the scepter and the ruler. You know, recently in the last well, year or so we've witnessed a coronation which is pretty rare in this world of ours now to see such a thing but as the queen of england passed the the scepter was passed down to king charles in a lot of pomp and circumstance well um Let's explore the idea of the scepter in Judah's blessing and its fulfillment in Christ. So again, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob prophesies about Judah's line, speaking of a scepter that will not depart from him. The promise points towards a future ruler, the ultimate fulfillment, again, found in Christ Jesus. Jacob's blessing over Judah symbolizes leadership and authority. Now, the imagery of the scepter represents kingship within his lineage. So let's take a look at that. The scepter in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, or chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, it says this. God is speaking with David. of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before him. At your house, your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises David an eternal kingdom, establishing a royal lineage that extends beyond earthly rulership. David had to know, even in receiving this pronounced blessing from the Lord, that God was speaking beyond the confines of earthly rulers, especially when he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's not David sitting on the throne forever. So he had to be thinking ahead And David himself, in Psalm 110, um, speaks of a future ruler, greater than himself, ordained by God to rule with authority and power. And the Lord says to my Lord in this passage, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is David Speaking of here, he's speaking of the Lord. These passages lay a groundwork for the coming of Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the promised ruler. When we turn to the passages of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, it establishes Jesus' lineage. That's the one when oftentimes we tell people. You know, you really should read the Bible, and maybe sometimes that's a starting point. Well, if you start with Matthew, you, you might not get past chapter one, <laughs> right? Because you're like, oh, this is a bunch of names. I don't understand it. But for Matthew, his, his, his audience as he wrote his gospel was to the Jew, and his idea, as God inspired him, was to establish that lineage. And so that's how he starts his gospel, affirming Jesus' rightful place as the promised descendant. Now in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says this, "Then I, John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse." The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns, diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which... He is called is the word of God. And The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is portrayed as the King of kings, wielding a scepter of righteousness and ruling with unwavering authority. We think of the love of Christ. We think of the love of Jesus, but we need also remember that he is our king. And it's not going to go easy for this sinful world in the end. We need to remember that he comes in judgment as well as in love and in redemption. Remember to give honor to our king of kings. The prophecy of the scepter, not departing from Judah, finds its ultimate realization in Jesus Christ. He's the long-awaited ruler whose kingdom knows no end. His authority surpasses all earthly powers, offering salvation, guidance, and eternal life to those who believe. And unfortunately, judgment for those who do not. Let's talk about the arrival of Shiloh all the way back there in Genesis. The fulfillment of God's promised peace. In the midst of Jacob's blessings to his sons, the prophecy of Shiloh stands out. A promise of peace and tranquility to come through our Messiah. Now, in the uh, English Standard Version, which we use here at the church, here's how Genesis 49.10 reads. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's, Now, if you have another translation, such as I chose the New American Standard when I was um, studying, it reads like this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So they are actually both saying a similar thing, but it's translated a little bit differently. Um, now, the footnote in an ESV Bible often says, and it's, a, it's really clever the way it's worded, <laughs> by a slight revocalization, a slight emendation yields, if you compare some of the other texts, Septuagint, the Syriac, and the Targum. It yields until he comes to whom it belongs. In Hebrew, until Shiloh comes or until he comes to Shiloh. The definition of the word in Hebrew is Shiloh from Shalah, tranquil. Tranquil is its meaning, but it's also and this is how uh, my Strong's uh, defined it in its notes, an epithet, or a name, if you will, of the Messiah, Shiloh. Jacob foretells the arrival of Shiloh, a term interpreted as signifying peace or tranquility. Now, the promised figure brings the ultimate peace, That humanity craves. In other words, even Jacob understood that the earthly reign of the tribe of Judah would ultimately come back to the Lord, the Messiah. Judah would give the scepter back to the one to whom it belongs, the bringer of peace and tranquility. In fact, the prince of peace, As we look through other places in the Old Testament, we turn to and think of Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah prophesies about a child to be born whose government would bring endless peace and establish justice and righteousness. Shiloh. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. The prophet Micah in this passage speaks of a ruler to be born in Bethlehem whose origins are from ancient times, symbolizing peace and security. Jesus, Shiloh, fulfilled in his birth. Now let's talk about the arrival of Shiloh in Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. The angel announces the birth of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, fulfilling that long-awaited promise of tranquility in Shiloh. John 14, 27 says, and this is Jesus speaking, "'Peace I leave with you. "'My peace I give to you. "'Not as the world gives do I give you. "'Let not your hearts be troubled.'" Neither let them be afraid. Jesus himself speaks of leaving his peace as a gift to his followers. A peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a great account in the New Testament. I I hesitate to call it a story. I hesitate to call these stories stories because they are actual accounts of history. They are accounts of what happened as witnessed by not just one or a handful, but in many times by hundreds. So there's an account in Mark chapter four, verses 37 through 41 that says this, and you'll remember. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And these are fishermen. (laughs) I'm scared in a boat, let me tell you. I'm scared in calm waters. I'm just not down with the depths of the sea or crystal lake either way so it wouldn't take a fisherman being scared (laughs) to make me scared but these guys were used to being in a boat that's rocking and and going to and fro don't you care that we are perishing and jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and he said what to the sea peace A serene and tranquil surface in Jesus. This picture of calmness finds its ultimate fulfillment. He's the bringer of peace in the midst of life. Storms offering serenity and tranquility to all who seek him. Again, as we do life together, church family, I look out across this sea of people, (laughs) and I see folks who have not, who've had times of turmoil, times of of the boat, uh, times of feeling like you're perishing, and I understand through example many of you have taught me how important it is to rely on the bringer of peace, and that even when things are about to capsize, he's still there. He's there in the midst. He understands what it's like to be in the middle of the storm. And nobody understands physical pain more than Jesus. Nobody understands grief and emotion deeper than Jesus. He is truly... As Hebrews calls him, a faithful high priest that knows exactly how to pray for us. That's who Jesus is. His life teachings and sacrifice not only brought peace to individuals, but also established an everlasting peace with God through his selfless act. The prophecy of Shiloh finds its ultimate realization in Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of God's promised peace, offering a tranquility that surpasses even our own limited ability to understand. And that goes to all who would call him Lord. Now finally in Genesis 49, chapter 10, it speaks of he will have the obedience of the people. Jacob's prophecy speaks of people turning to the promised ruler and obeying and following his leadership. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The call to love and obey God with our hearts emphasizes the idea of our obedience to him in in a relationship. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is the lamp for our feet and light to our path that would guide us as we trust him, as we obey him, as we listen to his call to us. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus is getting ready to leave this world and he speaks to his disciples and he gives them what we call the great commission. He comes and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus commissioned his followers to, f- to follow his directive to teach and make disciples and to spread the gospel. And it was through their obedience to Jesus that we find ourselves seated here today. Obedience. When God calls us to do something, it's our willingness through our love for him for recognizing how much he has done for us. It is our willingness to obey that shows our love for him. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, these are the words of Jesus himself, if you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. Jesus emphasizes a connection between our love for him and obedience to his, his teachings, his kingdom. Think about a GPS for a moment. What does it do? It gives you direction. What happens if you don't obey? <laughs> well, if you're Michael Scott watching The Office, you drive into a lake, right? Or, or, or did he do that because he was obeying something that had gone haywire? Anyway, think about that. If we are to get where we need to be, there is the idea... That God is directing our path. He's teaching us the way to go. He's teaching us there's a wrong and there's a right. He's teaching us that he loves us even when we're wrong. He's teaching us that we have no right or ability to judge someone else when we ourselves fall down in the area of obedience so many times. It's true. That doesn't mean we can't live by the principle of the Bible and and express that to other people. That's not judgment. But our attitude when we correct someone has everything to do with judgment. And the Bible says that we should restore people in love. That should be our goal when we... Uh, Correct or rebuke, as the Bible might say. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And that either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Obedience leads to righteousness, freeing us from the grip of sin and aligning us with God's will. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Loving God means doing as he's asked us to do and not taking it on as a burden, but in love. The prophecy of obedience to the promised ruler finds its relevance in the lives of modern followers of Jesus. Our obedience isn't about mere, uh, you know, doing what we have to do out of, of, of a sense of duty. But it's about living out our love and trust in him daily. Now, at the beginning, we talked about a tapestry of threads that stretched from early days to Jesus. Now imagine, we have been invited through our acceptance of his great gift of love and salvation, to find our place in that tapestry as well. Not in the lineage of the king, but in deference to the king to be a part of his kingdom. I ask you today, I urge you, turn. Turn from your way, the the way that seems right to you. The Bible says that his ways are so much higher than ours. Turn from that way and acknowledge him as your ruler, as your Shiloh, as the one who holds the scepter to all glory belongs. Let's pray this morning. Father God, you have brought us to this place again to worship and lift up your name. You are our king. You are the one to which all glory, all deference, all love belongs. Father we praise you we thank you for that. As we celebrate this time of year father as we give gifts let us not forget the lengths the depths you went to to bring us back to you father. Today I pray for everyone present in this in this place. I pray a blessing on each family but I also pray for us as individuals lord That if we have spent time away from you, if Father, we have failed to acknowledge you and how you have brought us through even when we don't even realize it, how you have loved us back into your arms so many times. Father, I pray that today we would make it our priority to love you, to serve you in obedience. Recognizing you as our king. Father, thank you for this church family. And I pray again a blessing upon them as we celebrate the gift of a child in the manger. Who is fearsome and rides on a white horse in his his maturity. Thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.